I love a good bootstrap startup story. And I got a great one for you here. Brian Clayton, he's the co-founder and CEO of GreenPal. And they have built their business from nothing, completely, absolutely nothing, with no idea how to work in SaaS. He had no SaaS experience prior, all the way to 32,000 companies and over 300,000 users. It is quite the story. And he shares a lot about what they did in the early days, getting traction and getting initial success it's going to help you go from zero to one and then one to 10 and 10 to 100. So take a listen. This is going to really help get you going, get you off the ground and help you scale beyond. Enjoy. Welcome to Sastery in the Making, the podcast that features the people who made the software world what it is today and the leaders who are shaping the future of technology. Here's your host, Matt Wallach. Welcome to Sastery in the Making. This is Matt. I am your host and I am so happy to have you here. Thank you for coming. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. If you are here for the first time, make sure you subscribe to the show. Hit the subscribe button. That way you're not going to miss out on any of the amazing things we have coming for you in the next few weeks. So go ahead and hit that right now. And today I am really, really excited. We're here with Brian Clayton. Brian, how you doing? Matt, I'm great. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. So glad to have you here, Brian. And I really want to make sure everybody knows who you are because we're going to talk about some great things, but I think your background is important. So let me share a little bit about you. Brian, he's the CEO and co-founder at GreenPal. And GreenPal, it's a great way to book a lawn mowing service at a touch of a button without even having to make a phone call. So this this thing, this app, GreenPal, it's been called the Uber for Lawn Care by Entrepreneur Magazine. It has over 300,000 active users, completing thousands of transactions per day, doing over $20 million a year in sales. Really, his expertise is in entrepreneurism, small business growth, marketing, and bootstrapping businesses from zero revenue to profitability and exit. And as you can see, he's doing a great job so far with GreenPal. Brian's also formerly the co-founder at Peachtree.io, which was one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee. He grew at over $10 million in annual revenue before it was acquired by Lusa Holdings in 2013. So he knows all about starting, bootstrapping, growing, scaling, and exiting, which I know a lot of you out there are trying to do. So once again, Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Matt, thanks for the awesome introduction. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So tell me, What's going on with you lately and what's coming up? Yeah, so like you said, I'm CEO, co-founder of GreenPal, the app that's the Uber for lawn mowing. Uh, we're like a 10-year overnight success. Been at this thing for almost a decade. Uh, Funny first, how that works, right? Yeah, the first several years of growing the marketplace were, were really challenging, but it was uh, we celebrated the small victories along the way and the little numbers started compounding and now we have several hundred thousand people using this app. And luckily, uh, we bootstrapped it along the way, too. We self-funded the business and didn't take on any outside capital. And so now uh, we're still growing really fast and we own all of the business. We're kind of in charge of our own destiny. And now it's starting to get a lot to be a lot of fun. And uh, the next five years looks like getting the business to $100 million in revenue. We're doing multiple eight figures in revenue now, and we're trying to get it to nine figures. I love that. It's such a, a fun time. I've been through that exact same growth pattern myself. And it's really interesting to see how the business changes from the beginning and then kind of you go through an early stage and a growth stage. Isn't that, isn't that crazy how things change during all that time? Yeah, it's kind of like uh, 
it's like a video game almost. It's like uh, 20, looking back 20 years in business, one thing has made sense to me. It's like, it's just one level at a time. You just got to get through level one, like Super Mario Brothers, throw up the flag at the end of the level and get on the level two. And I think what holds up a lot of new founders is they're worried about Bowser when they're on level one or two. And you really just kind of need to work at one level at a time. And for me, it's almost like every business has three phases. There's the startup, the grow up, and then the scale up. And the startup is you're just trying to get an idea out there. And will people use it? And will people keep using it? And then the, the grow up is do we have a business? Can we, can we get like 500K in revenue, maybe a million, maybe 3 million? And then the scale up is teams and teams and leaders uh, creating new leaders and, and getting to nine figures and building a really big business and scaling up around you. I'm pretty good at the first two versions, uh, first two uh, uh, levels. We're going we're gonna to figure out if I'm any good at the third. <laughs> That's always a fun time. But I want to go back before what you're doing here at GreenPal. How did you go from Peachtree, a landscaping business, to now you're a SaaS founder? Like how, how did that whole thing work? Yeah, so I started mowing yards in high school as the way to make extra cash and stuck with this little lawn mowing business like 15 years and built built one of the larger landscaping businesses in the southeast and got it over 150 employees, uh, 10 million a year in revenue. So I was able to grow that into a, a real company. And the business was acquired by a national organization in 2013. And so after that, I took some time off. And quite frankly, I got bored. I thought, well, what do I do with my life now? I started to realize that my business was the storyline to my life. The project that I was working on was the thing that causes my life to be interesting almost, gives me a purpose in life. And so I had this idea that an app should exist for what I just spent the last 15 years of my life on. And I saw what Uber and Airbnb and Lyft were doing. And I thought, you know what? An app needs to exist for this industry that I know so well. And so you should be able to push a button and you should be able to summon a, a lawn mowing service to come take care of this chore. And luckily, I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know how hard it was going to be. And it was kind of naivete as an asset. Because uh, if we had known how challenging it was going to be, we never would have done this. <laughs> but uh, recruited two co-founders. We got in the trenches, started working. And here we are now a decade later. And, and uh, we've got a good nationwide marketplace. It's still growing fast every year. I love it. it that, I hear that story so much. A lot of SaaS founders come on the show and they say, I'm not, I didn't realize how tough it would be until I got in. But wh what did you feel like were some of the most challenging aspects in those early days? What they don't tell you. Uh, so I, I'll say this. I think a lot of people are seduced by the idea of starting a software-based business because for some reason, we think it'll be easier. I don't know why, but I felt, I felt that. I think if we're like in a traditional business, it's just organized chaos every day. And we think to ourselves, you know what? If I had a software business, I wouldn't have any of these problems. Mm -hmm. And what you don't realize is that when you're starting a software business, 99% of the time, you're inventing something brand new from scratch that doesn't yet exist. It's a new tool. Mm -hmm. It's a new workflow. It's a new ex product experience. You're solving a problem in a new way. And that is an order of magnitude harder than any traditional business setting that, that you could ever imagine. Because starting something brand new and going from zero to one is really, really, really hard. And 
you're having to kind of figure it out as you go. And the only way you kind of get from, you have to go from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. And nobody can prepare for you for how challenging that is. You just kind of have to get in there, grit your teeth and, and grind your way through it. And so that was one of the most challenging pieces to, 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 to our journey was I what nobody told me that that was the case that, 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 you know, running a landscaping business is challenging, but this is a this is ten times harder because you're inventing something brand new. The other thing is, is we're a multi-sided marketplace, uh, a SaaS-enabled marketplace, if you will, and so we have to build these SaaS tools on both sides of the transaction for consumers and for lawn care service professionals, and mm -hmm. and then getting kind of both people to the party at the same time, uh, and solving that chicken and egg problem is really really challenging for for marketplaces. Yeah, I actually had a marketplace system as well. We were serving uh, real estate. And so it was a little bit different mm, yeah. than what you're doing with lawn care. Ooh, that's tough. <laughs> but <laughs> same deal. And this was commercial. Uh, but we had both uh, commercial real estate properties and vendors to those properties who were our, our it was a dual sided marketplace, just like you're saying. And it is difficult because you kind of got to build the app to both directions to both customers. And you got to figure out how you're going to sell and message to both. Uh, so it's definitely a challenge. What have you found to be some of the most uh, important aspects that you've been able to accomplish or, or put in place that help you get to where you are? I think if you're trying to create a SaaS product or a SaaS enabled marketplace for any sort of real world transaction, I believe authenticity can be a competitive advantage. So if you are crazy enough to start one of these companies it can behoove you to kind of solve a problem you've experienced or try to create a breakthrough or make more efficient an industry that you know through firsthand. Like a deep fundamental understanding for the industry can really be helpful because I can kind of, I mean, not even helpful. It's almost like table stakes. Like you really kind of have to know the industry from the inside out. And uh, that way you can kind of solve your own problems, so to speak. And that's how it unfolded for us. We we were able to start on second or third base because I had spent 15 years in the industry. I'd seen firsthand all the places where it breaks down and where an app and technology could make it run smoother and could, could kind of make the whole thing more efficient for both sides of the transaction. Had I not had that, uh, we probably would have crashed and burned and and not not gotten the early traction that that we got. So that's the first thing that that I'll recommend is is try to solve your own problem and try to look at it from like authenticity as a competitive advantage. If you don't if you don't and you try to like revolutionize some industry that you don't know anything about, it's going to take you like three or four years to get up to speed on it, and and your competitors mm -hmm. will, will will blow right by you. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's really important to know the industry. And if, if you are, some people are developing a product that's not for their industry. And what I always recommend to my clients is start having lots of conversations with yeah. per potential customers or ideal fit type customers, those types of people, and really get a deep understanding of who they are, what they're looking for, what they're striving for, what their goals are. And that's where you can start to get a better understanding. So you can develop the product, you can develop the marketing, everything towards them. I completely agree, Brian. I want to ask, you talked about getting some of that early traction, and now you've been able to grow. Over 32,000 lawn care businesses are using the application. So how did you go about getting that traction and getting that growth in those early days? Yeah, the zero to one is the hardest phase. Like the level one is so the true. hardest level because you don't have anything and you're kind of trying to like rub two sticks together. And not only that, but our app really sucked in the early days. And so mm -hmm. what we, uh, how we approached it 
was we've we we tried to make the consumer experience as good as we could and we kind of threw all of our firepower on that and then we built just enough for the for the lawn service professional side and we kind of hand cranked that side and focused on just one market and and tried to figure out how we could get it to work in one market and so it, it was our own backyard nashville tennessee and the way we we kind of hand cranked our way on the on the supply side was i would offer free coaching and mentoring to lawn care services that would use the app. And so the first like 10, 20, 100, all the way up to 500 service providers, I knew personally, they all had my cell number and I would do like weekly coaching sessions with them to be kind of like the honey and the glue to get them to use the, the platform and stay to cons consistently use it, to be there to submit pricing, to show up and do a good job for their clientele. And then we could focus on the consumer side. And then after we kind of uh, got the consumer side pretty good, then we went back to the to the pro side and 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 built out the tools and built out all of the workflows we needed for to make it to make it more of a self serve uh, uh, workflow rather than us having to hand crank it. But that's how we approached it. That's how we got our our early traction. So I think in the early days, it can be helpful to do things that don't scale and mm -hmm. really hand crank on it. Uh, until you figure out ways to automate and get the flywheel going. I totally agree. I, I've seen that a lot and I've done that myself with my applications. And you just kind of have to figure things out early. You have to, like you said, do things that don't scale. It wouldn't have worked for you to continue to do all that stuff yourself for 32,000 different companies. But you know, early days, you've got to kind of figure that out and what do they need, what's important for them, what, what helps them be successful and get them onboarded and adopting the program. And uh, how can you do that in the most efficient manner early? And then how can you automate it later? I, I think that's brilliant for sure. Yeah. And, and I get this question a lot. I, I, I mentor uh, other startups and, and particularly marketplace founders as a hobby. And I get this question a lot. In fact, a, a guy was asking me the other day, wants to start a, a marketplace for electricians. That's, that's very similar to ours. And, and his main question, I mean, he doesn't really even have a product out the door yet, but his main question was, I don't know how to recruit service providers at scale. And I said, you know, that's a Bowser related question and you're on level one. And, mm -hmm. and, and like, let's not even worry about that. Literally call up a hundred service providers on Craigslist, get five, get them in the pocket and then figure the rest out. You're not dealing with the problem of the, of recruiting electricians at scale just yet. So, and 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 I, and I don't mean to be condescending when I give out this advice. This advice because I made these same mistakes. Uh, mm -hmm. So I want to like reiterate and and beat into people's heads. Don't even worry about scaling it. Uh, really, just get get like a seed amount of users, and then figure out how you're going to get the overlap between them and solve the main the, like the most pressing problems at that stage of the game. Then worry about that later. I think that's perfect advice. Too many times people are thinking too too big and too long term instead of, hey, you need to get 10 of your you know customers on board. You know, right. magic numbers kind of 10 when you people say that's where your product market fit is. But you need to figure out how are you going to get those? And then once you get them, now you've got the capability to start thinking bigger than that. But I, I totally agree. And I, I want to know now that you've, uh, you know, if we're going back through your story and we're in those early days and you start getting this growth and eventually you start realizing probably you need a team, right? So how did you go about building your team? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny thing, delegation. Um, you, can, you can delegate too soon and then you can delegate too late. Uh, so mm -hmm. I've, I've made mistakes on both sides of that equation. So when we first started, 
we didn't know how to build software and we didn't know how to design software and we didn't know how to distribute software. And so we started trying to like delegate all these things. We hired a development shop to do all the code and we hired a marketing agency to do the marketing and we wasted close to a half million dollars doing that. And, and we had to like take it back to basics and, and do it all of our, do it all ourselves for a while. We had to learn how to build software. We had to learn SEO. We had to learn design. We had to learn uh, user experience. We had to do usability tests and all of these things that try to learn the 80-20 of all these skills. And then we could build out a team around us. Then we could mm -hmm. delegate uh, from a standpoint of stewardship and not one of uh, abdication. Uh, like delegating to somebody saying, I don't know how to do this. Uh, therefore, you handle it is a recipe for disaster. You should be able to delegate from a standpoint of, hey, here's the scope of work for what we need done. Here's how we do it. Here's why we do it this way. This is how long we think it should take. This is how we grade the quality. This is how much we think it should cost. Here's what we want it back by. Uh, are you a good fit for this or not? Um, that's, that's stewardship delegation. And it's really mm -hmm. hard to delegate from a standpoint of stewardship unless you've done it before. And so, and so we made the mistake of delegating too soon and then we held on to everything too long and didn't delegate soon enough. It took us about three years to start building out a team around us. We started the, uh, really looking at like triaging almost. Uh, where is where is the biggest bottlenecks that we need help with? Well, our our product sucks. We need a better uh, user experience designer. Okay, let's spend some money there. And you know we, we're coding up all this stuff, but we have like twenty other features that that are in the backlog that we need to build. We need some more developers to help us. Okay, let's look and see how we can bring on some some more development uh, talent. And, and a lot of times as a founder, it's your job to be one of a, of a capital allocator. Money is coming in and then you're putting money back out there to work. And you're trying to make your, your bets based on what customers are telling you, what you're observing in the marketplace and gut instinct and maybe a little data you have. And, and the game of building a SaaS product is not, not one of like chess where you can make these predictable moves that lead to victory. It's more like poker. And you're just making bets based off of off of uh, off of risk calculation and and what 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 you can observe in the game and a lot of times gut instinct and so that's how it's unfolded for us and and that's how we have built this thing you know little by little over a decade and and with what revenue we brought in we we would make ten thousand dollars one month we put ten thousand dollars back to work. Yeah, that's, I love that analogy. It is like poker. You don't really know all of what's going to happen, but based on the odds, based on what you know, based on what you've seen so far, you can make bets that you know you feel like are going to impact you and help you positively. I love that analogy, especially since I love poker so much. Uh, but I want to know also, as your team grew, did your culture change? I've seen this myself, but within your company, did you feel like the culture changed over time? And was that good or bad? Yeah, it's it's one of the things that the founder has to be in charge of. So as a founder, there are like two or three things that you'll you can never like keep your eye off of. Strategy, the competitive marketplace, like like product innovation is is one I think the founder should always have his hands on, her hands on. And then the other one is culture. It's like what is the vibe at the at the company? Uh is it you know, what's the kind of people we're trying to get on the bus? Is it a it is it a fun like exciting place to work or is it one that you know people are just kind of punching in punching out and i made all of these mistakes in my first company in like year five or six and then it took me two or three years to fix it and then i was able to avoid those mistakes uh when i built the second company and the main mm -hmm. way i've been able to avoid uh 
creating a, like a crappy culture is in the hiring process. I really, really, really try to date people before we bring them on. And what I mean by that is like, let's work together as uh, on a contractor freelancer basis for like six months. And then let's start doing some more work together. And then, uh, and then, you know, then let's start talking about maybe a more of a full-time role. And then let's try that for a month or two. And then if that works well, then let's look at like, a, like at, look at like a, like bringing you on in a, in an official position and let's check in every six months and, and, and really trying to hire people that uh, have a chip on their shoulder. Quite frankly, I'm mm. looking like I'm not looking for the guy or gal that was popular in high school that was uh, like the high school quarterback. And and uh, I'm looking for the guy who who didn't get a date to prom and has a has a ch has a chip on his shoulder and always will and wants to prove something in life. And and they see uh, their role uh, at the company they work at as, as a way to like uh to, to prove themselves almost. And we've got 46 people. Not all of them are like that to a degree, but that's one thing that I look for is somebody who, who has a chip on their shoulder, has something to prove. And, and what, and is that way net today and will always be that way. Uh, that's th these are just little things that I look for when I'm looking to bring somebody on full time. I love it. I think it's super important for me. I have found when I hire hiring for culture has been, uh, much better for me and for the success of myself as well as the company and that person, they fit in better and they succeed more often when I hire for culture more than skills. As long as they have the foundation of skills and they, they have the basic understanding of what they're going to do, th that cultural fit is critical. So I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that as well. I want to know, uh, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but what advice would you have for software founders who are getting started and looking to see a, a growth pattern that is 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 getting them to higher valuation, building a team and making them successful. What pieces of advice can you share from your story, Brian, that others can take and apply? Yeah, you you really you a you got to you, you're driving towards product market fit. Do people want to use your product? Are they in and continue to use your product? And really nothing else matters until you figure that out. Um, and then, so that might be level one, two or three. And then after that, you're really trying to figure out how you're going to create a flywheel at the core of the business to where the product can, can help grow itself, uh, through the, just the, the natural use of it. And so how, you know, in Uber's case, more drivers meant shorter wait time, which meant more consumers, which meant more drivers which meant lower fares, which meant more consumers. That's like a flywheel effect that Uber had. We have a similar flywheel effect in, this, in the sense of more service providers come onto the platform, the more competitive the bids get, the more competitive the bids get, the, the, the more that the cost goes down, the more that the cost goes down, more consumers, which means more suppliers, which means better route density, which means lower prices and so on. And so looking for that flywheel effect at the core of your business, even if you're only, you know, doing like hundred K in revenue is what's going to get you uh, to get what they call a skate velocity to where you're mm -hmm. not just kind of trying to push a rock up a, a mountain for, for the next decade. These things are really hard. Uh, and a lot of times uh, a lot of capital gets thrown at, at an idea to try to, to try to catch lightning in a bottle and try to, to try to capture these things. I don't think you have to raise capital. I think you can bootstrap your way through it. Um, but that's how I would look at it. I would look at like step one, let's, let's just get something that a hundred people like, 
and will use and will keep using. Mm-hmm. And then let's look at what the what the early signals and early indications of what a flywheel effect might be in this business. Perfect. I love it. That is great advice. And I totally agree with it. Uh, we've reached our time. Unfortunately, it's been a lot of fun hearing your story and hearing about how you're able to grow Green Pal and get it to be quite an amazing success story. So how can people who are listening, how can our audience learn more about you, Brian, and about Green Pal? Yeah. Anybody listening to this doesn't want to mow your own grass or maybe your lawn guy flaked on you. That happens all the time. You can just download Green Pal in the, in the App Store or Play Store and uh, you get hooked up with a good service provider in a couple couple minutes. Uh, anybody wants to hit me up, uh, hit me up on Instagram, Brian M. Clayton. Just drop me a DM there. Okay, perfect. And we'll put all that in the show notes as well. So if you're listening, you'll be able to see all of that. But Brian, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Matt, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And everybody out there, thank you for coming again. Make sure you're subscribed. Hit that there. Also, give us a rating. If you think this is helpful, if you like it, go ahead and rate this and then put any comments in there as well. That'll help me understand that I'm directing content that'll be helpful for you. So thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care. 